Well, turn with me, if you would, to Psalm 130. I really enjoy kind of between preaching various books of the Bible, just hopping into a couple psalms from time to time, and, and thought uh, one, Psalm 130 might be a great blessing to our people today, and so we'll focus our attention on this text together this morning, Psalm 130. Um, at the age of four or five, my, my parents, like yours may have done, signed me up for swimming lessons at the local uh, YMCA, and so all the other students in the class or whatever, we, we jumped into the shallow end of the pool, and our teacher taught us about how to do all kinds of things, like float on our backs and uh, hold the side and kick our legs and then a few different strokes as well and uh, all the rest. It was great. Tons of fun. Well, as a small child, you know that there, there is something that you're acutely aware of about the pool. Uh, there are actually two sides of the pool and sometimes they're even separated by a rope. We might even call it a rope of warning. Uh, there's the shallow end. That's safe. That's probably where you belong as a small child most of the time. And then there's what we call, and as a kid, you even say it with special inflection, the deep end. It's that place in the pool where your feet don't touch the ground. You start getting near that rope, and then all you're like, whoa, I could be under this water really, really fast. Sometimes in life, we find ourselves in the deep end, and there are times that we end up there, frankly, because of our own doing and because of our own sin. We put ourselves there Or maybe God is chastening us over our sin. And there are times where it's almost as if someone else actually picked us up and hurled us in. Sometimes life can be crushing, overwhelming, and horrifying. Uh, Psalm 130, if if you look even just at the, the first words of this psalm, it was written from the depths. It's a psalm of lament. And more specifically, it's categorized as a psalm of penitence. Or we might say a contrition or remorse. It's part of a larger section of psalms that you may be familiar with called the songs or psalms of ascent. Uh, these psalms were written and sung by worshipers on their way up to Jerusalem for special feasts and holidays. You remember that the Jewish people uh, regularly made pilgrimages and trips uh, from all over Israel up to Jerusalem for feasts and such. And like most of the Psalms of Lament, as you move from verse 1, the first verse, all the way down to the final verse, you see the psalmist move uh, typically from either or pain or plea, and he ends up at praise at the end of the psalm. The process taken to get there is always highly instructive for us in our own times of pain and plea and sorrow and lament. What should you do when you're in the deep? And that's what we want to look at this morning. God gives calm in the deep to those who trust him. So how do you experience that? How do you get there? Well, look at this psalm with me as I read it. The psalmist says this. Out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all of his iniquities. There are four stanzas in this psalm. There are each two verses, verses one and two, three and four, five and six, and then seven and eight. 
And in each one of those stanzas, we see the psalmist making a choice of sorts. He's deciding, making a choice to do something. And so we're going to look at four choices made in the deep. They're the choices the psalmist made. And they're the same choices God wants you to make when you're in the deep. Choice number one, God gives calm in the deep when you cry to him. When you choose to cry to him. Look at verses one and two again. As the psalmist is telling his story, he says, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. That, that first stanza there mentions the place that the psalmist is, is crying out of. It also explains who he's crying to and also the plea that he makes. And so let's examine each of those for a moment. Let's start with the place that he cries from. Verse 1 begins, out of the depths I cry to you. Often in scripture, the depths uh, refer to water, like the depths of the ocean or the depths of the sea. And what the psalmist is doing here, he's using a very powerful uh, figure of speech or image to convey vividly and portray his situation. You might be in the depths here today. Uh, this week, right now, and in whatever phase of life you're in, the depths are a dark, stormy place, and, and they represent uh, distress, chaos, uh, feelings of floundering and, and flailing about, sinking, terror, despair, perhaps depression, most likely loneliness, anxiety, this feeling of drowning and, and being crushed, gasping for air, fear, and so on. And perhaps you are familiar with the depths. And right now, maybe you're experiencing some certain type of, of depths, the depths of financial trouble or the depths of failing health, the depths of relational trouble or conflict, the, the, the depths of some unforeseen, unwanted change or circumstance in your life, the depths of some kind of loss. Uh, the depths of, of work stress or pressure, the depths of your own sin and guilt weighing down on you, or perhaps the depths of, of something else or a combination of, of many of those things all at once. And these are the places from which no amount of self-help will suffice. You can't pull yourself up by your bootstraps as, as, or anything like that. You can't fix this. And these are the places from which we cry out. This is the place that the psalmist is crying from. And we want to notice, well, well, who's he crying to? Who does the psalmist cry to? What is his name? Well, keep reading in verse 1. He says, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. If you look at each of these three stanzas, you'll notice that the psalmist in each one of these, alternates between different names for God. The psalmist refers to God as the Lord. You'll see that probably in your Bible, written in all caps, or maybe your Bible says Yahweh there. And, and that name is then followed by the Lord, lowercase. You see that in, in each of the first three stanzas, Lord, all caps, then lowercase, then all caps, then lowercase, all caps, lowercase. The Lord there in lowercase is the word or name Adonai, it means Lord or Master. The psalmist is recognizing God's sovereignty and, and authority. He's recognizing that God, you are the master of the deep. You are the Lord of heaven and earth. But he also uses another name for him. He, he calls him the Lord, all caps. And that is the word, the Old Testament name, 
Yahweh. And this is God's personal and covenant name. It's the name by which he intimately relates uh, as a person to his people. It's a, it's a highly relational name. When a man and woman stand before each other on their wedding day, uh, we often hear these words or some variation of these words, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, Till death do us part. That's the language of promise. That's the language of what we might call a covenant. It is a covenant. Do you realize that God has made a covenant of love with his people and he's given us the promise of his unfailing, steadfast, loyal love through thick and thin, much like what we would see and hear in marriage vows. And he actually has a name that's specifically attached to that covenant. It's his covenant name, Yahweh. Or as, it, as it's rendered here in our English versions, the Lord in all caps. The psalmist is crying out to the God who has pledged himself to him in loyal, unfailing love and who is simultaneously the master of the deep and Lord of heaven and earth. That is the God to whom we cry. Who do you cry out to? That very same God. And let's, let's look at the plea that he makes. What is it that he's crying to God? Look at verse 2. He says, Oh Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. The psalmist wants his cry to be heard. There's an urgency to his request. He's asking for more than an audience. He's, he's asking for more than just, I want my request to come to you and you to hear that. He wants more than an audience. He wants an answer to his request. He's pleading for undeserved mercy and kindness and grace from God in his situation. He's crying out to God, and it would seem that he's asking for relief. And maybe that's what you're doing. You're crying out for, for relief, and you might be saying, God, what's going on right now? This is too intense, or it's too much, or God, what's on the horizon here? It could go this way, or it could go that way, and it... it, it Please cause it to go that way. Please act. He's crying out, but as we'll see in verses 5 and 6, he's not getting an answer from God. And God's not immediately uh, lifting and pulling him out of the deep and just making it all go away. The psalmist is waiting, and while he's waiting, it's as if God is completely silent. Uh, I like having voicemail on my phone. I'd imagine you like it too. It allows me to screen calls and return them on my timetable. Uh, if I'm sitting down for dinner and my phone rings and I may see, oh, so-and-so is trying to call me, I, I may put my phone down, let it go to voicemail, let him leave a, leave a message, and I can call him back when, when it's more convenient for me. I really like voicemail on my phone. <laughs> but I really don't like it on yours. And I don't like it on anybody else's phone, right? When I call you, in my mind I'm thinking, you should answer like now because I'm calling you now. Right? Or if I call uh, some company or some business and I need a part or I've got a question, I want them to pick up that phone. Or if I call a parts store and it's like, excuse me, can you please hold? No, I cannot hold. But yes. That's how we feel. I, I love my voicemail, but I don't want anybody else's. And, and this is what has happened 
to the psalmist, the psalmist has cried out to God from the depths of his life and from the depths of his soul, and it's as if it's just gone to voicemail. Just silence. And maybe that's where you're at today, or maybe that's, or, or perhaps you haven't even cried out to God yet. Based on verses one and two, what is it that God wants you to do? Cry out to God. Keep crying out to God. Even if God doesn't answer, humbly cry out to God in dependence, expressing your need. Uh, that is what God wants you to do, to cry out. And you will not experience calm in the deep until you've done that, until you've taken the time to take all that's within and, and throw that God's way, so to speak. You will not find calm in the deep. However, you cannot stop there. The psalmist at this point, at the end of verses 1 and 2, he's yet to experience calm in the deep, right? I mean, in fact, it's like he's reached the height of his turmoil and chaos because not only did he have all that was swirling around him and going on, now he's cried out to God and there's nothing. Now he's probably really uh, worked up within. The next choice that you need to make is the choice to worship. To worship God from the deep. That's verses three and four. God gives calm in the deep when you worship him. Look at these verses, verses three and four. Or, or let's come to them. Let's come back to them. Hold on just a moment. The psalmist is worshiping God around one grand uh, central gift that God has given him. Forgiveness. That as you look, if you just kind of cast your eyes over these verses, that's what they're all about. And that's precisely what God wants you to do as you're in the depths is to worship God based on his forgiveness. Before we examine what that looks like, though, why don't we just back up and ask a couple questions about this psalm? Because I think there's some confusing parts to it. What is the deep for the psalmist? I mean, you can maybe identify what the deep is for you right now, but what's it for him? And more specifically, is he crying out from the depths of his sin? Is he, is he feeling the, the guilt of his sin weighing down on him? Or is he feeling the depths of, of pain and suffering or the ramifications of the curse? Another question, why is the psalmist in the deep? Is he in the deep as a direct result of his sin? Is he there because God is chastening him? Or is he there as an indirect result of Adam's sin? what we might call the curse. With those questions just kind of sitting there in the back of your mind, I would just have you note that the rest of this psalm is full of words like this, iniquity, forgiveness, redemption. What are the depths always linked to? 100% of the time, sin. The depths are always either directly or indirectly linked to sin, to our sin, to our great, 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 great grandparents' sin, Adam and Eve. And I think that the psalmist is acutely aware of that in this moment. Just think about what's happened here. The psalmist cried out to God with no answer. And here I poured everything out and it's like, where is God? And why won't God listen to me? And why won't God respond? Well, when that happens in your life, what type of things start to come to your mind? The silence is often a deafening reminder to us of our unworthiness. Maybe God's not responding to me because I'm so wretched. And maybe it's the sin in my life or this or that or the other. Why should God answer me? You are in the depths 
because of your identity with Adam. And that very thought, it is that very thought that I I believe here is leading the psalmist to worship. That is where worship begins. It begins with an understanding of the fall. It begins with an understanding of the curse and our own sinfulness and our own unworthiness and that all the trouble and chaos that we experience in this life, it all goes back to what happened in the garden. Whether you're in the depths as a direct result of your sin or as an indirect result of Adam's sin, God wants you to worship him for his forgiveness. In the depths where we so often long for practical deliverance, we should turn our attention to God's spiritual deliverance, his forgiveness. So if you want to worship God in the depths, remember that forgiveness is your need. Look at verse 3. The psalmist, after this deafening silence, here's where he ends up. Verse 3, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities. O Lord, who could stand? Uh, Iniquity is, is a word for sin that means twisted or bent out of shape. If God were to keep a meticulous record of all of your sins, if God were to hold your iniquities against you, if he were to count them against you in judgment, and hold you accountable for all the wrongs you've done, you could not stand. You couldn't stand before God's throne in judgment. You'd be condemned and destroyed. Do you know what else you couldn't do? You couldn't stand before God's throne in prayer, making requests and making pleas like the psalmist makes in verse 1 and 2. You'd be dismissed. You'd have no business there. You couldn't stand beneath the weight of your sin. It would crush you. Its guilt would overwhelm you. And thankfully, verse 3 begins with the little word, if. And the psalmist here is stating something that's contrary to fact. It's not true. God doesn't mark the iniquities of his people. God doesn't keep a record of your wrongs and hold those against you in condemnation and judgment. There is no book like that. Remember that forgiveness is your need. But also with that, remember that forgiveness is your present possession. Verse 4 continues. After this statement of God, if you should mark iniquities, who could stand? But verse 4, but with you there is forgiveness. Reading this psalm of ascent makes you wonder if perhaps the psalmist was, wherever he lived in Israel, maybe he's traveling up to Jerusalem, the capital city, from wherever he lived for the special Jewish holiday, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Each year in Israel, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would uh, take his hand. You you can read about what happened on the Day of Atonement in chapters like Leviticus 16 and elsewhere. But each year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would take his hand and he would then take his hand and place it on the head of a goat. And he would confess over the head of the goat all the iniquities of the people of Israel. And he was symbolically placing, and the idea would be, he's symbolically transferring the sins of the people onto the head of the goat. And after doing that in Leviticus 16, 21 and 22, God said this, God commanded this. Send it, send the goat away into the wilderness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area. 
Isn't that amazing? The priest puts his hand on the goat. The symbolism of all the sin going off the shoulders of God's people onto the head of the goat. And then they banish the goat out into the wilderness. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 verse 17. He said, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. Do not think that I've come to do away with that whole system called the Old Testament law. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. 2,000 years ago, the great high priest of the ages lifted up his hand. With all the guilt of his people, all the sin of his people, and he took all of that and placed it on his own head. And his name is Jesus. And out into the wilderness, there on the cross, he was driven. Where was he driven? Away from the temple? Away from the Holy of Holies? Away from the glorious presence of God? So that there in the Holy of Holies, you might, to borrow the language here of verse 3, you might stand. From the depths of our sin, sorrow, and pain, what do we proclaim? We proclaim like the psalmist did, with you there is forgiveness. The worship doesn't stop there. Remember that forgiveness is also your motivation for godly living. Verse 4 says, But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Fear is the outcome of forgiveness. Uh, Let me give you some synonyms for the type of fear that he's talking about here at the end of verse 4. Obedience. Worship. or, Or we might even word it this way. Worship through or by obedience. God forgave you in Christ so that you might live a holy, faithful, obedient life as a worshiper and catch this even in the depths. Because the depths are hard and the pressures are great, I think we often use the depths as some kind of excuse or even a justification for ungodliness. Uh, we've all been there, right? And the, the pressure is so great and maybe the pain and the hurt is so great. And, and, and the, the, the external stressors are, are just grinding us into the pavement. And somehow that becomes an excuse for us to be ungodly. Are you doing that? God gives calm in the deep when you worship him with a life of obedience based on what he's done for you. Forgiveness is needed, it's available, and it's life-changing. Worship God. He gives calm in the deep. And then a third choice made in the deep, verses 5 and 6. God gives calm in the deep when you wait for him, when you choose to wait for him. In verses 1 and 2, the psalmist cries out to God for mercy, and he's still waiting for an answer. And God has not responded. God has not lifted him out of the deep. But the psalmist has gazed upon God's forgiveness anew. He's been reminded of of the gospel uh, through the Old Testament lens. And now notice how he responds in verses 5 and 6. Once he's gone back to the gospel, once he's gone back to the forgiveness that only God can provide and his unworthiness and what God has done for him, what does he do next? Where does that lead him? Look at verses 5 and 6. He says, with confidence now, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. Now he's resolved. 
that from the depths he will wait for God and his answer, but not just for God's answer, but actually for God himself. And that's what God wants you to do. What's he waiting for? Well, at first glance, it might appear that he's simply waiting for God. God, would you please do something about my present situation? I've cried out to you. I've made this plea. I've made this request. Will you fix it? Will you, will you bring relief? But I think there's something additional that he's waiting for. Not just God's immediate answer, but God's ultimate answer. Redemption. Full and final redemption from the depths. And I say that because in verse 8, the psalmist talks about what God will do, future tense, for the people of Israel. The future redemption of his people from their sins. It's like in verses 3 and 4, he says, there's forgiveness now, which helps me anticipate future redemption. He seems to be waiting for redemption from sin and all of its effects, much like what we would see in Romans chapter 8, for example. And you realize in some ways that every act of God's deliverance in the present, all of these pleas that we make for the here and now, point to that great future act of redemption and deliverance. We're waiting for Christ's return. And taking your cues from the psalmist, you should wait for that with confidence in God's word. You should wait for that ultimate day of redemption and the full and final lifting of the curse. You should wait for that with confidence in God's word. Look at verse 5. He says, I I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. There's some uh, parallelism, we might call it, between line 1 of of verse 5 and line 2. And the effect of that is that waiting for the Lord is the same thing as hoping in his word. If you want to wait well, if you want to look at Christ and God to, to be the one who answers you from the depths. If you want to wait well, you, you do it with God's word in your hand. But perhaps I, I think I could actually be more specific. Wait with confidence or hope in God's promise. His word in verse 5 should probably be interpreted not so much as a reference to the whole Bible, although we constantly want to be immersing ourselves in truth. But his word there is probably a reference to God's promise of salvation or redemption. It's like the psalmist is saying, God, you gave me your word. You gave me your promise of salvation and deliverance, and it's in that that I hope and I set all of my affections and confidence. And also wait with anticipation of God's response. Look at verse 6. Notice how he describes how he waits. My soul waits for, for the Lord. And then he wants to give us a picture of how that actually is working out for him. He's describing it as uh, more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. Uh, the waiting described is not passive. It's actually quite active. You might say that the psalmist was busy. Waiting. It sounds like an oxymoron, like an antithesis there. Those two things, busy and waiting, don't go together. But that's precisely what's happening here. He's eagerly anticipating and waiting for the arrival of something. And he likens it to a watchman, a soldier. uh, You might picture him up on top, an ancient city wall. And he's watching at night to defend the city, making sure that no enemy army is approaching. He's got his eye out for danger. 
And like a watchman is just longing and waiting and keeping his eyes on the horizon, hoping that enemy troops don't march over, over the hill, but that instead the rays of, sun, of the sun will begin to come up. He's actively waiting for that. And that's how the psalmist describes his wait for the Lord and his response and his ultimate response. A few weeks ago, I went fishing. There, there are lots of different ways you could fish. You could take your pole. You could cast it in the water. You go, you know, I'm kind of hungry. Set that pole down. Where's my lunchbox? Where's my sandwich? Where's my chips? And, you know, you're just like, this is great. Fishing. I got my sandwich here. Or, you know, you may go, okay, cast it in the water. Maybe you're trolling and you've got your hand on the fishing pole. And as the boat's trolling through the water, you're holding the pole just waiting for the, the slightest little tug and, and bend on your pole. <laughs> and as soon as it happens, ooh, you want to catch that fish. The two ways I just described, one's pretty passive and the other's active. It's that active sense of waiting that the psalmist is describing here. Is your heart actively waiting? Is your heart uh, fixed on Christ's return and his ultimate redemption? What are you waiting for? I think sometimes in our times of turbulence and pain, it's just we're waiting and everything, our whole hearts and minds and attitudes just fixed on, God, you got to fix this immediate problem. It's so hard right now. But I think as we grow in our faith and confidence and trust in the Lord, what happens is, yes, God, God would you please do that? Would you please answer me here and now in my, my distress? But I'm actually looking beyond that. I'm looking for your return. I'm looking for that ultimate redemption. When you, when you ultimately forgive and redeem and lift the curse once and for all in, in its final complete form. I'm waiting more than anything else for the return of the king and full and final redemption that comes with it. Wait for God. God may leave you in the depths here and now. In fact, he, he may allow pain and he may not lift you out of those depths. Will you let him be the Lord, the master of the deep? He gives calm in the deep to people who wait. And a fourth choice that I want to look at here briefly. God gives calm in the deep when you testify of him. Think about what's happened for the psalmist. He's gone from crying out and he's been then moved to worship and now he's waiting with his eyes fixed on, on God ultimately answering. And after being moved from, from crying out all the way up to that point, he ends in verse 7 and 8 testifying. Look at these verses. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. That, that is stated with confidence. It, it's, it's, he's testifying to his people. The psalmist starts the stanza with, O oh, Israel, hope in the Lord. He went from crying out in pain to crying out in praise. My God is a great God. His love is steadfast and he is plentiful in redemption. Now he's testifying to others from the depths of the hope that he has in God. And that everyone else can have too. I'm experiencing this from the depths and so can you. God wants you to bring, to bring you to that point after leading you through the, these first three stages. Where you can with joy and confidence and hope testify to who your God is and what he is like. Testify of the hope of his steadfast love. You can sing the praises of God's unfailing love to you through thick and thin. 
You can testify of the hope of God's plentiful redemption. That is verse 8. You can testify to others with joy that God redeems from sin, and one day he will bring that to ultimate fruition, ultimate completion. God wants you to testify of that. And you'll never get to that point unless first you go on this journey from crying out to, to looking at the gospel and forgiveness with just anew and then waiting with confidence on the Lord. My eyes are fixed on him. And once God has brought you through that point, you're at the point where, wow, like I, now, now I'm actually evangelistic in the deep. Now I'm actually testifying of God and the gospel and his redemption and all these other things in the deep. God wants to take you from all your focus on your own pain to, to someone who's now testifying to others, saved and lost alike, of God. Testify of him. After all, he gives calm in the deep. I'm extremely grateful for my home office. It, the way that our house is set up, it's far enough removed from uh, everything that else that's going on in the house that it, it's often pretty quiet and I can sit down there and focus. I'm one of those, these people that I, if I'm going to get something done, I kind of need silence. Some of you can work in total chaos and you're like getting it done. I am not that person. I kind of need to shut the noise out, uh, not have a bunch of things going on around me and I just need to focus. Well, uh, a couple weeks ago, I was not being productive, though my office is typically quiet. It's, that's not always the case. The other day, uh, the piano was being played above me. The, the piano literally sits right above my office. And so that was being played, and my kids and uh, their grandparents were playing on the wall opposite me. And I'm like, I just can't. I'm, I don't even, I was maybe just trying to draft an email. I'm like, I can't even type. I can't even put two thoughts together. It's just chaos all around me. And you know those, those dad moments where everything in your heart just wants to like come out and yell at people? You be quiet. I'm trying to work over here. And uh, the, Yeah, you've, you've probably done it. You laugh at me, but you've probably done it. I'm like, oh, I, don't, I don't want to do that. What can I do? Like, I'm not getting anything done. So I said, I know. I'm going to go out to the garage, and I'm going to grab my, uh, not earplugs, but I have these big like ear muff uh, things that I mow the lawn with. So I go out to the garage, grab those, come back to my office. <laughs> oh, this is amazing. There's chaos all around me, just total silence. And I was at a point where I could be productive again in the midst of the chaos. That's exactly what's going on with this psalmist. In this passage, God doesn't take the chaos away. And God may not do that for you. God didn't say, hey, you know what? You've cried out to me. I'm just going to step in and calm the deep like Jesus did uh, when he stepped out on the storm and he said, silence, and everything was just... Whew. God didn't calm the deep for the psalmist. Rather, he brought the psalmist calm in the deep. And there's a big difference. Calm didn't come on the outside. It came on the inside. And God does that. He gives calm within if you want to drown and you want to get swallowed by the depths, don't cry out to God. Don't, expre don't express your pain to him. Don't, don't cry out to him for relief or an answer. Don't give him all the burdens that are on your shoulders. Don't worship him. Keep the gospel as far away from your mind as you can. Don't wait for him. Focus on what's here and now. 
And certainly don't testify of him. And you will get swallowed. You will drown in the depths. But if you will follow the same pattern that the psalmist went through, God will give you calm in the deep because you're a person who trusts him. Would you bow with me as we conclude our time in God's word this morning?